Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's a Wednesday morning. Let me see if I can do the Tefillah podcast. Uh, as always, sponsored by Mish Bacha Stefanski. And matter of fact, I saw Saul Stefanski the other day and... Uh, he showed me this catalog. I mentioned. I told you they're going to um, have their auction. I guess not this Sunday. Next Sunday, I suppose. Right, nine eleven, not to crash in the building, but to have the auction broadcasting live from Jerusalem at seven p.m. So, if you're interested in this, if you're a player, then uh, you go to Genazim, G-E-N-A-Z-Y-M. They spell in a funny way. If you go to Ganesim, you can see it, and all these items, which are extraordinary. And since it's a tefillah podcast, so I'm flipping through the parts of the rare sidurim and moxers and all that kind of stuff that they have over here. And the one that really caught my attention, which is really remarkable, is, uh, <laughs> I don't know where they get this stuff, is uh, they have a, a handwritten sitter from the 1400s, from the 15th century in Italy, which is a real work of art. Now, there was a full sitter that somebody wrote out with Nakutis and everything, obviously, all the directions, and it's it's Italiani. That's what's so interesting. The Italian sitter, which is not exactly the same as ours. I mean, fundamentally, all these siddurim are the same. But the interesting differences are the differences. And it's just interesting to me because this is called in history the Machser B'nai Roma. That's how it came to be known. The word machser doesn't mean what you think. Machser means a, a sitter that takes you through the whole year. So just imagine that uh, you have one sitter which has all the stuff you need um, for whole diving every year. By us, that would be a fatso product because you'd have Roshani Yom Kippur, daily davening, you know what I mean, Pesach Shul Sukkot, and all the rest of it. With the piyutim, is like crazy. And this is what they call the machzor, B'nai Roma. They're just names they gave it. The reason they say B'nai Roma is this is interesting. In general, we have enigmatic passages or parts of Jewish history that we don't know totally about. That's what drove Professor Chaim Salvechuk to come up with these wild schemes. I, I respect it because you have gaps in Jewish history. You don't know exactly what happened. Let me explain. <clears throat> Broadly speaking, when you get after the ancient times, there developed two general traditions in learning and in tefillah and in many other areas, <clears throat> A and B. One is Babylonian, one is Eretz Yisrael. Now, over the course of time, the Babylonian one predominated. So what you and I practice today is more or less Babylonian Judaism. Uh, not 100%, but 99%. And that's because, as we all know, <clears throat> the Babylonian tradition, which is embodied in the Talmud Bavli, predominated over the Yushalmi, for a whole bunch of reasons. And the Babylonian tradition, even after the Gemara was concluded, continued on, chugged along, for the next several hundred years, what they called the Gaonim, 
which is not, the word Gaonim means nothing other than the Rosh Hashivas in Babylonia. There used to be two big yeshivas. I think you know this. Surah and Pumbadisa. The word Gaon simply means the Rosh Hashiva. So whoever was the Rosh Hashiva Surah was called a Gaon. And whoever was the Rosh Hashiva in Pumbadisa was called a Gaon. Nobody else is supposed to be called that name. Uh, these yeshivas <coughs> attained an institutional authority. I'm sure I've spoken about this before. See, if you're talking about the late 600s, 700s, 800s, 900s, into the 1000s, you had a period of time in which, you know, uh, these yeshivas were rocking. And it also coincided with what they call the Arab conquest, the Muslim conquest. So the Arabs, right around the time the Gemara was concluded, more or less, the Savaroi, uh, the Muslim religion arose and physically conquered a gigantic empire from the Atlantic Ocean to India. Now, that's a lot. And there were a lot of Jews living there. In fact, Rove of Claw Yisrael was over there. And that undoubtedly facilitated the spread of the Babylonian Talmud because the main headquarters of the Arab Empire turned out eventually to be in Baghdad under the Abbasid dynasty. And that's right next door to Surah and Pumbadisa. We do not know today exactly where Surah and Pumbadisa were. They were obviously villages or small towns. They ceased to exist. And the yeshivas relocated in Baghdad, which became a big city. I mean, the capital of the Arab Empire. And therefore, the yeshivas had a lot of, what's the right word? Power, uh, influence, uh, creds, money also. And they were able to sort of just in, in a parallel to the Arab operation, the way the Arab government and culture emanated out of Baghdad to dominate the rest of the Arab empire in the 700s, the 800s and all that. So the Jews in their own way, <coughs> Mutatis Mutandis, Lahabdo, uh, did the same thing. And that means that their traditions of doing halacha and davening and all the rest of it permeated out to elsewhere. Most likely, I said this the other day, most likely, you know, in the Middle East, the uh, the yeshivas in Surah and Pumbadisa, together with the Reish Galusa, who was still operating in those days, got to a point in, in different communities throughout the immediate Middle East. And those guys were graduates, obviously, of Surah and Pumbadisa. And they spread their Torah the way they did it. If you want an example of what I'm talking about, make more sense, in our time, my lifetime, You've seen the yeshivaization of American Orthodox Judaism, probably Israeli too. And so the norms of the yeshiva world came to characterize most of the synagogues, Orthodox synagogues, because the graduates of those yeshivas, the ones who became the rabbis, and little by little here and there, they made the yeshiva shit kind of things. Right? That's why the American culture today, the Orthodox culture, unless you're Hasidic, is sort of like Litvish Yeshiva ice, right? It's not Yekish anymore, really. It's not uh, Polish, uh, Galtzianer, and so on and so forth. came pretty much the same thing. So that's because the influential people were the, one, or the graduates of the schools. So that being the case, um, the Babylonian form of Judaism really rocked and spread across the Arab Empire, which means that... Spain, North Africa, the Middle East, all that stuff, huge areas, came really under the uh, 
domination of the Babylonians. Now, we take it for granted. These are the great scholars. What about Eretz Yisrael? Is it tricky? It's tricky. Eretz Yisrael, we don't know that much about. There used to be Tanan Mamarim there, but unlike Bavel, which was under Persia in the time of the Gemara, Eretz Yisrael was under Rome. So, the Roman Empire switched to Christian in the 4th century. So, the Christians, for various reasons, wiped out the rabbis, the yeshivas, in the late 4th century. So, the Eretz Yisrael development of Torah and tradition and the uh, the Nasi and the Sanhedrin and all that were killed, were wiped out. Or were brought into desuetude one way or the other. I'm not going through all the details. This is called in history the period of late antiquity. Right? And Judaism was pretty doggone well crushed in a way that did not exactly happen in Bavel. So because of that, the influence that Eretz Yisrael once exercised, which was very powerful, because you had the Nasi there, you had a Sanhedrin there. That ceased to be. I'm talking about the late 300s and all that. So consider this well. Suppose you're Jewish, living in the 400s, the 500s, the 600s. And you're living in Egypt and Greece and Italy and those kind of places. There's no center in Eretz Yisrael. It's been physically destroyed. And although it seems to be that um, liturgically, you still had brothers that are Kaliri and people like that. But having said that, it's um, it was tough. And if I can use the expression, the only game in town was Bavel. Now, how exactly the influence of Bavel reached these territories, I said, like in Greece and Turkey and uh, Italy, that's very, very unclear. You see? Uh, it's very unclear. This is what I mean by gaps in Jewish historiography. There are others as well. Um, and without getting too technical, the Christian Roman Empire, which had ruled Eretz Yisrael, was busted in the early 600s and the 630s. And the whole area of Eretz Yisrael and Syria got taken over by the Muslims. So now they themselves were sort of part of a culture in which Babel was predominant. However, 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 the Muslims in the 600s and afterwards, were not able to break into the area you and I call Turkey and beyond. So if you don't know your geography, I'm just stuck. What can I do? But you can Google a map. Let's say, for example, of, of uh, Europe in the, in the year 700 or 800 or 900 or 1000. And you'll see that the Muslim Empire, which is very great, stops at, at the borders of Turkey, which at that time was not called Turkey. It was actually the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantine Empire, and was Christian. And there were Jews living there a lot. So, um, and they were persecuted and all that, but nevertheless, they lived there. We don't know that much. We'd like to know more, let's put it that way. There's a whole book called Megillus Achimats, I think I've spoken about before, which purports to be from that period. Here you have a whole Judaism, again, using the area of Turkey and the Balkans and southern Italy, I repeat, Turkey, which at that time was called Asia Minor, or uh, or the Byzantine Empire, was Christian. There were no Turks there, and uh, and the Balkans, which means Greece, and uh, the areas of Bulgaria and others. 
the, the, the politics is too complicated for me to go into now. Border is always changing. And interestingly, um, Italy, southern Italy, for a long time, was ruled by the Byzantine Empire. The headquarters of the Eastern Roman Empire was Constantinople. Today they call Istanbul. And this, and this was a kind of Judaism, Jewish culture, which was on the other side of the Cold War borders. Uh, hundreds of years, there was a war, sometimes cold, sometimes hot. The Christians on the one side, the Muslims on the other, between the Byzantine Empire on the one side and the Arab Empire, the Caliphate, on the other. And although there was some intercourse between the two sides, but the two Judaisms developed, you know, not in the same way. One Judaism was heavily influenced by the Arabs and the dominant rulers, and the other one was influenced by the Greek Orthodox Christian stuff. Uh, we call these people the Romanian Jews, Romaniot. I'm not, call, I'm not talking about the country of Romania today. I'm talking about the Byzantine Empire, which once existed. And they seem to have kept up more of an Eretz Yisrael Dika type of Judaism, more based in Yerushalmi, perhaps, perhaps, things like that. And you find these expressed most interestingly in the Sidurim, because by this time, the idea of a daily order of prayer had taken hold. That itself is not so pushing. After all, as you know, long, long ago, there was no davening. As the Rambam says, beginning of Tefillah. And the beginnings are the beginnings are the beginnings of Tefillah at Seaboard, formal prayer. According to the Rambam, started with Anshik Hesagdola. But that just means the very beginnings of it. It took a long time for davening, as you and I understand it, to assume the role that it did. What's so interesting, of course, is the gap between Eretz Yisrael on the one hand and the Chutzars on the other. Even time of Bayashani, if you're in Israel, let's put it this way. The main action happens in the Beis HaMikdash. But if you're Chutzlars, there is no Beis HaMikdash. So the institution of the synagogue definitely developed in the Chutzlars. On the other hand, what do you need a basic Knesset for in Israel? But then again, I'm wrong, because the Mishnayis and Yumi even talks about the fact that the base of Midrash had a basic Knesset, which makes no sense to me. You know, I mean, just imagine. <laughs> I love this. You know, you're you're going to base of Midrash. You have the Kohanim, you have the Fields, and the guy's like, "It's Mincha, Mincha." <laughs> you know, you're, you're right there. But nevertheless, these developments happened, and after the Churban base of Midrash, the institution of the synagogue had to replace. The base of Middash was, was destroyed, and it became universal among Jews. But what form did it take? It had already assumed certain forms in Chutzlaris. But again, what do you mean by Chutzlaris? There was a diaspora in the eastern Mediterranean. Those territories, Egypt, Asia Minor, Greece, and so forth. And they were subject to the Greek influences of the culture of that time. Even under the Romans, it was still Greek culture. The Byzantine Empire actually switched to Greek from Latin. Mashankin, if you go to Bavel, it was under the Persian influence, later the Arab influence. You see where I'm going with all this? That the um, influences in which the Jews lived were different in different places. And as I said before, you can see 
that what you and I take for granted, particularly in terms of davening and things like that, is the way certain things developed along certain lines in some places, but not exactly in the other places. The nuschos, the particular piyutim, the, the forms, were not identical. There are psukidizim and shmonesri, that is true, because that you find in the Babylonian Talmud. But within that, you see interesting ranges, and one of the places where the old Judaism, um, you know, Chagdun, uh, the one that was influenced by Eretz was in the Byzantine Empire of the Romanian Jews, the Romanio Jews, including southern Italy, okay, including southern Italy, which is the place today they go for the Esrogum, the, 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 the fancy Esrogum, you know, the boot of Italy, in other words, the, the southern part. And how should I put it? Eretz Yisrael, once the Christian rulers and persecutors were gone in the 630s with the Muslim conquest, made a determined effort to have a Tchis Mason and to reclaim the position of Eretz Yisrael as central and dominant for the rest of the Gola, for the rest of the Jews of the other communities of the diaspora. Now, they were not successful. Okay? Um, Bavel was not displaced by Eretz Yisrael as the center of Judaism, which is just interesting. And there were fights, many of them which are famous, in the time of the Gonim, which the Babylonians set up their own yeshiva, they set up their own kind of Rishkalusa, sort of. They said, or Nasi, whatever they want to call it. They tried to revive the Sanhedrin. They tried, you know, to, to take over the calendar again, things like that. It did not work. Once the Babylonian system was in, it was not able to be displaced. But there were areas of Jewish population in which the tradition of listening to Eretz Yisrael was still strong, particularly within the Roman Empire. Um, not in the Arab areas, which is ironic because Eretz Yisrael was still under the Arabs, but in the area of the Roman Empire or what was left of it, the traditions of li- listening to Eretz Yisrael being influenced by Eretz Yisrael more by the Yushalmi than by the Bavli, things like that, was still there. And uh, you see this in certain uh, instances, especially in terms of prayers. And therefore, there developed the Italian Nusuch. So I'm talking about something that's very old. That's why this this uh, Siddur is so interesting. The Siddur is written in the 1400s, but it's old, probably from the 400s or the 500s, I don't know. Very old. And it was an object of big fascination, this Siddur, Machzer B'nai Rome, as they call it, particularly in the 19th century when they started the Wissenschaft des Judentums, these scholars, Maskilim and others, who uh, were studying the nitty-gritty of Jewish history, the 19th century really was characterized by antiquarianism and people wanting to get facts straight, which is not bad as long as you don't stop there, but that's what they did. And for some reason, um, most of these guys were not from somewhere. They were very interested in the history of liturgy. And the Machzer B'nai Rome is a very rich source of this. One of the most famous in the Maskil in the 19th century was Shadal, Shmuel David Lutzato, from Padua, who uh, was a sickle weirdo. He was um, one of the leading Maskilim. He was a from guy, in other words, he was a Shomer Shabbos in terms of But um, he wasn't doing it his way. 
And believe it or not, he was the head or an important figure in what they called the rabbinical seminary in Padua, because Padua was, at that time was part of, believe it or not, the Austrian Empire. And the Jews in Italy on their own were muscular. Worth, you know, Shomer Shabbos muscular, Italy. And it didn't work out so great, let's put it that way. Uh, but Shadal was one of the big savants. He knew a Velt, and in Italy it had a lot of Xaviads, manuscripts of all sorts or another. This guy was totally into it. He knew how to learn to some degree. I wouldn't say a big degree. Um, and what's most interesting from pers- modern perspective, he, this is classic um, Haskalov. He he wanted very much to be an Orthodox Jew who was anti-Kabbalistic. He don't believe in none of that stuff. According to him, the whole Zohar knows is baloney. He wrote books about this. Which sometimes people write to me in emails about. And, I mean, I get it. I understand the reasons for it. But if you want to understand the type of Haskalah that develops in Italy, it's along those lines. Although I must say, there were other Maskilim, a few, who were big Maskilim and were pro-Kabbalah. So, uh, Shadal wrote a book, what's it called? Tom Lashad or something? Proving the Kabbalah's baloney, and the other guy, Ben Amozeg, from Livorno, wrote a book to defend the Kabbalah. These are probably on Hebrew books or something, if anybody wants to see it. It's the old arguments back and forth. Nothing new in them. Uh, so, being Italian Jew, he was interested in this Nosach, although, listen closely to what I'm about to tell you. Most Jews living in Italy, and there weren't many, were not Italiani. They didn't have that nusach. They didn't come from that background. What do I mean? I'm sure I said this before. Italian Jews, the way it developed, was along three lines, A, B, and C. And I'm not going in any particular order. Ashkenaz, fired Italian. In Northern Italy, for example, most of the Jews who moved there in the Middle Ages, in the 1200s, were Ashkenazic Jews in Verona and Padua, a place like that. And they mamish brought Yiddish with them and the whole Ashkenazic way of doing things. And that's how they remain Adayomazet. There were so they're Ashkenaz. There were others who came after fourteen ninety two to Italy and they're Spanish. And again, Adayomazet. So there are places in Italy where the Shul is Ashkenaz. Um Shadal. Davan Ashkenaz all of his life. He's descended from Ashkenazi family. The Ramchal, the Lutzatos, or Ashkenaz Jews, if you go all the way back, you know. Um, there were others that were Sephardim. And then there were those Jews who call Italiani, meaning they didn't move there from somewhere else. They must go all the way back. How far back? I don't know. They say to go back to Julius Caesar, for all I know. I mean, you know, real, I mean, they say they're there all the time. Is it possible? It's possible. I, I never did an exact study of that. But they've been there for a long time. Rome happens to be one of the few places in which there was always a continuous Jewish community. And southern Italy was rocking and rolling once upon a time, even in small numbers, back in the early Middle Ages. Kimi Tzion takes a Tzvara, Torah, Dvar Hashem, Kimi Bari takes a Torah, Dvar Hashem, Tronto. I think the Rebbein of Tom, somebody said that. These small little places which are garnished today once had small but very important 
um, Jewish communities in terms of scholarship. And these guys developed their own way of doing Yiddishkeit, um, not totally according to the Talmud Bavli, uh, older than that. And one place you see this is in, in their prayers in Tzidurim and Piyutim. Shadal wrote a very famous, uh, even though he's not Italiani, but he was Italian, wrote a very famous uh, essay called Mavo Lamachs Bene Roma. It's online, if you're interested in it. In which he goes through all these numerous Piyutim that you find here, a lot of which nobody's ever heard of, or in other forms that we're used to. I remember Kilo, no, eh, Kilo, yeah, it's from there. Some things ended up in the Haggadah Shal Pesach. And, uh, I mean, it's a lot more than that. And being a Maskilic antiquarian, he'll tell you who wrote it, when the guy lived, in his opinion, how many lines is it, what kind of poetry is it, what kind of negudas they have, all that kind of business. And this was really interesting to scholars of a certain type. I'm not that way, but I know about it. And there was, there was a big historian in Israel of liturgy, Daniel Goldschmidt, the Yeki, and he, like, followed up on it. So this stuff has been known. And you find a whole wealth of liturgical creations in the Italian Moxer. Now, they themselves have dropped a lot of it over the years. And to tell you the truth, I'm not a Bucky. I was in Italy once. Most Italian, most Jews in Italy today are not Italiani. I believe I'm right about that. Most of the Jews in Italy, I think, are Sephardic. Uh, when I was in Italy on our trip, let me just think, we daven a lot by ourselves. I didn't daven in the main shul in Rome, which I guess is Italian. But I remember in Venice, the shul we daven in, that was the only one they were using, was um, the Livorno Sephardi Nusach. You see? It's cute because, you know, they have the first paragraph of Leno, not the second. I don't know, things like that. Um, and I think that's the case everywhere. But I can't, I haven't been participating in services in, in, in all the Italian shows. Maybe somebody will write me. Uh, but I, most or many of the Jews who live in Italy today came there after Second World War, the refugees. A lot of people came from Libya, from Persia, from Iran. Say so they do their own thing. The Italian, Italian Nusach, I think, is very rare. I think there's one or two shuls in Israel like that, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and it's like in the pristine uh, sort. No, they've changed a lot of it too. They dropped a lot. Uh, so my point is, once upon a time you had these small communities. They call them B'nai Roma because most of the Jews who spread throughout Italy who were Italiani, originally from Rome and spread elsewhere. If you want to be very technical, the Nusach may have developed south of Rome in the Byzantine parts, doesn't matter. And here you have a shavit of Klal Yisrael. That's my point. And what's always interesting about Italian Jewry is the difference between quantity and quality. Quantity you never had in Italy. Quality sometimes you had. Uh, it's, how should I put it? If you have a small community, numerically, in America... But let's say they have a very active kolel. You know, let's say, I'm just making this up. Let's say they have 10, 15 families in the kolel. And the whole community, besides that, is another, I don't know, 40 families, 50 families, 60 families. It's actually a very throbbing, lively place, Jewishly. The fact that there aren't numerically large numbers 
doesn't mean that it's not significant Jewish-wise. That's the interesting thing about Italy. I would say in general, that was Ashkenaz in the Middle Ages. Today, it's not really like that. Today in America, for example, in England, people tend to move towards larger communities. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's easier that way. Day schools, you know, uh, social life, people want to be in larger communities. And I get it. But once upon a time, circumstances were such, particularly in Italy, that that wasn't possible, and economically not even desirable. So they had developed a situation in which they had a rich culture, even in small numerical situations. And our master today that I'm looking at, although it's expensive, <laughs> it's, just, it's for the high rollers, right? Uh, which is really uh, wonderful because it's got gold pages and stuff like that. But it's um, obviously some richy rich guy, long ago, of the quality type that I'm talking about. Must have lived in who knows where, in a small town in Italy. And he paid a person to be a calligrapher and write a work of art. It's like a medieval manuscript. In which you have the whole davening, as I said before, in the Italian way, which is, you know, Shabbos, Pesach, Shulis, Rosh Hashanah, the whole nine yards, uh, and all these piyutim, which if you want to know exactly who wrote what and when, you, you read the Shadal essay, if you're interested in that sort of thing. And they have these old forms, which, um, you know, you see was the original, perhaps, very likely was the original kind of way of davening. Uh, you know, for example, it says, uh, what do you call it? Rukhatam Shosani Adam below Behema. We don't have that. Shosani Mal below Aurel. Shosani Yisrael below Goy. We just have Shosani Goy. You see what I'm saying? That, that kind of thing, right? And um, you see, therefore, the evolution of the Neschos over the centuries. It's, it's, and by the way, the paper has to be real good because it's not... And it's, uh, it reminds me a little bit, not exactly, of the Munich Codex, of the Dikduke uh, uh, Sofran, which means that it had to be commissioned by a Jew who on the one hand was a richy rich and the other hand had was classy. Because to pay a guy a lot of money, an art, a talented calligrapher, by the way, it might have been a woman who wrote it, you know, sometimes the women were better calligraphers than the men. Nothing wrong with that. They said, that'd be just interesting. And write, you know, I don't know, hundreds of pages, thousand pages, it's got to be very wide. And do every page just so without making mistakes. And have the gilt-edged pages and all the rest. You're talking about somebody who was very classy once upon a time. We had such people. This would be the learned merchant. It usually was. You understand? The, learned, the Jew who, who was doing well in business but also was um, a Talmud Chacham, some sort or other, and was, in the Italian fashion, a patron of the arts. If this is written in the 14th century, I'm sorry, 15th century, that doesn't mean anything to you. But the 15th century was the Renaissance. That's what, excuse me, the Goyen are really indulging in making Italy the world headquarters for art, for fancy-schmancy books. And the Christians are developing what you would call the Medici class, which are the Medici, like in Florence and many others, 
were great merchants. In other words, they were loaded. But they didn't want to just be loaded and party away. Although they did plenty of that. They're Italian, after all. They did plenty of partying. But they wanted to be classy. You see? And so classy means, yes, I'm rich. And yes, I have wild parties. But I commissioned Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and this guy and that guy to great, great works of, of high art. And therefore, along when I'm gone, this will remain. So similarly, whoever it was that commissioned this guy to write a Jewish thing, now he's a from Jew, is no Michelangelo Leonardo da Vinci. The Jews are not paying people to, you know, make statues. Uh, they're Jewish, not, not Catholic. And they're not paying people to make paintings, even. Because even paintings was considered trade. Although there's a little controversy about that. It may have possibly have been some people painted the Rashi. I'm not going to go into that. But Jewish art means a fancy sitter, a fancy Gemara, a Mishnah, a fancy Chumash. So here we have a piece of this in terms of the sitter. Now, the only thing that I always wonder about when I see a sitter is like this. Is this meant to be used? Because if I had something this fancy, would I actually daven from it? The answer is in the 1400s, you would. But by the 1500s, 1600s, I imagine it was already, you know, a delicate work of art that was just kept in the families. Um, you're looking at 150 grand over here. Um, but anyway, the Machser B'nai Roma is not known so much from us. Uh, among us, we're used to the Nusach Ashkenaz and Nusach Svard, but it preceded the Nusach Ashkenaz and Nusach Svard. That's the point I wanted to get across. It's very old Nusach. Uh, and it's not like, how come they changed from what we're doing? Whenever you see a, a, a sitter like this, you always have to ask the opposite question. Why did we change from what they were doing? Anyway, that was just something that's interesting to me. If you have that taste for it, uh, as I say before, historical Sidorum, again, of a very high-end art situation, and you have the money, then this is for you. Uh, I will admire it from afar. Anyway, so I just wanted to share that's a, a case where the tefillah and the history kind of come together in very interesting ways. Uh, if you're interested in this subject, you want to see more about, to my mind, for the average reader, the best one is still the Golden Oldie, which goes back to the 1940s, and Cecil Roth wrote a history of the Jews of Italy, which is probably his best book, right after the Second World War. And you can see all the origins and everything of the spread of Roman Jewry and the Italian Nusach and all the others, how they uh, they spread and struggle to survive under very trying circumstances. Because uh, you can be doggone sure the Catholic Church always made a full court press on that. So if there are Jews who are still from Rome today, and there are, uh, their families have undergone a lot of privation uh, to stay uh, Jewish, let alone from. Anyway, that's what I wanted to share with you. Once again, I want to thank Mishpacha Savansky. And uh, like I said, if you're interested, you'll check it out in the catalog. And with that, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.